our listeners, our purpose of this show is to inform the public of criminal cases that have been solved and unsolved. We gather our information through much research on the internet and other resources. We are not professionals of any sort, and these episodes aren't meant for research purposes. If we do make any mistakes in the information provided, listeners are encouraged to contact us and provide us with the correct information. We attempt to make all the following information accurate, but we don't guarantee it. We mean no harm to the victims and their family. Our intentions are to bring light to these cases and help catch these criminals. Our listeners are encouraged to contact the appropriate law enforcement if they have any valuable information on these cases. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy our show. Hi everyone, I'm Reen. Hey guys, I'm Nisha, and welcome to Midnight True Crime. We are extremely excited to share our dark and intriguing content with you all. Not only do we have riveting content, but we will have guest speakers for you all. Before we begin this episode, we would like to immensely thank Joseph Keaton for helping create our music and Kayla Espinal for creating our artwork. You can go on our Facebook page and Instagram page to check out her beautiful logo that she did just for our podcast. Our Facebook page and IG are the same. It is at Midnight True Crime Podcast, all lowercase letters. If you want a hint for our next case, a picture will be uploaded at midnight every Friday on our Snapchat at capital M, lowercase d-n-i-g-h-t, capital T, lowercase r-u, capital C, lowercase r-i-m-e. If any of you would like to request us to do an episode on a specific case, please DM us on one of our social medias or email us at midnighttruecrime at gmail.com. So every set of five episodes, we will do five cases from a different state. This first five set is from Florida. A brand new episode will be posted every Monday at midnight. You can listen to us before work or school on your commute back home. Oh, we all know how long traffic in Miami is. <laughs> so definitely follow us on our social media for updates. Now, a little bit about Anisha and I. We are identical twins, born in New York, but raised in Miami. Anisha started her career at NSU for a year, and then she went to FGCU to obtain her bachelor's in mathematics. She got into podcasts about murders once I showed her my favorite podcast, Crime Junkies. My career started at NSU where I finished my bachelor's in psychology and in the process of obtaining my master's in marriage and family therapy. Ever since we were young, we loved to do puzzles and our affair for mystery started off with Scooby-Doo. Nothing beats waking up on a Saturday morning to a bowl of cereal and Scooby-Doo. We began researching mysteries by middle school and watching all things crime by high school. Above it all, we have a passion for true crime and unsolved cases. Yes, we do. And I do remember those fun Scooby-Doo days. (laughs) Now, about the case, today we have a case that immediately caught our eyes because it occurred in an area where I used to live in. And it was a very high-profile case that we were unaware of at the time. This case is called the Fort Myers 8. On the day of March 23rd, 2007, a surveyor was scouting out potential land development in a wooded area off of Arcadia Street in Fort Myers when he stumbled upon a human skull. He immediately phoned the Fort Myers Police Department at 10 that morning and by the end of the day, the police uncovered eight skeletal 
sorry, skeletal remains. Upon initial observation, the bodies were under about two inches of leaves and natural debris, which suggests the bodies were not buried at all. Were there any identification found on the bodies? There were no clothing, jewelry, or anything leading to their identification. And here were there were no footprints anywhere near the remains, indicating that no one had revisited the scene recently. The first set of skeletal remains were discovered about 50 yards from the only dirt road nearby, which led to the discovery of the rest of the remains. All eight skulls were collected and more than a thousand bones were discovered scattered in the area within 50 yards apart from each other and in a 200 yard radius area. Wow, that's a lot of bones. I can't imagine how long it took to extract those bones. Yeah, it did take investigators and their helpful team, sorry, team, several days to do this. About 90% of each skeleton was found. So let's just talk about the area for a second to give you guys an idea of where these remains were found. The area was very remote and is still pretty remote to this day. You can check out pictures of this area on our Facebook page. The land itself is owned by the city of Fort Myers, but it is often used as a dumping ground by hunters for disposing hog and alligator remains. So going back to the case, an initial observation from law enforcement was that the bodies laid there for possibly eight years or more. Wow. The skulls were sent to Wyoming to be tested by forensic artist Sharon Long, and Sharon was assigned to do facial reconstruction on the skulls. She rebuilt the faces of the unidentified victims using latex and clay to create lifelike interpretations of the victims. Yeah, guys, these latex and clay models can be found um, on our IG and Facebook pages, so go check those out. They seem like they're average guys. Yeah, they really do. So a challenge that arose from this was determining the size and the weight of the victims. Autopsies revealed that the bodies had no outside trauma and there were no bullet holes. Further tests from forensic anthropologists determined that the time frame of the killings were from 1985 to 2001. At this time, DNA samples provided by relatives of missing persons were being matched to the DNA extracted from the bones which led to the discovery of the identification of the first two victims. On Tuesday, November 20th, 2007, the identity of these two victims were discovered. The first victim was Eric David Kohler of Port Charlotte, Florida, aged 21 at the time of his disappearance, and the second victim was John C. Blevins from Fort Myers, Florida. A third victim was identified in late September 2008 to be Jonathan T. Hay, aged 24 from Aurora, Illinois. That's a whole year after the first two victims were identified. Later on in this episode, we'll get more into depth about these men's lives, but as testing continued, a general physical profile was developed for the remaining victims. The victims were all male, between the ages of 18 and 49, and possibly white or Hispanic, but most sources say that the remaining victims were Caucasian. There were many signs that suggested that the rest of the five men lived a transient or struggling lifestyle. The five other men for the five other men, up to 50 families from across the country have submitted their DNA for testing to see if their DNA matched the DNA from the five men. Do we know if any of them led to matches? There were no matches. Additionally, John Doe number one was between 20 to 35 years old, 5'6 to 5'10, and most likely had a muscular build. John Doe number two was between 26 to 43 years old, and 5'2 to 5'7. 
He had heel fractures to his ribs and chest, as well as a defect on his breastbone, and he had healed injuries to both calves and ankles. He had poor oral health with no recent de dental work. John Doe number three was between 26 to 43 years old and between 5'5 and 5'11. It was evident that he had arthritis in his back and previous fractures to his ribs and vertebrae, which suggests that he was a laborer or had a labor-intensive occupation. Excuse me, John Doe number four was between 25 to 35 years old and his height was around 5'8 to 5'10. He had a herniated vertebra and had previously fractured his nose, right clavicle, and right fibula. John Doe number five was aged between 20 years old and 35 years old. He was between 5'11 and 6'3, making him the tallest John Doe out of all five men. He may have walked with a limp and had a healed fracture to his right wrist. He was the only John Doe out of all eight men to have current dental work. I'm not sure about you, but it's strange to me that all these men had fractured bones and were somewhat close in age. It seems as if they all fit one type of profile. We all know anyone who follows true crime cases, we all know that most serial killers have a certain victim profile. Yeah, most of these men had heel fractures all over their bodies, which proves that they had fell on hard times, according to forensic anthropologist Heather Walsh Haney. She also mentioned that their health status, dental status, and their skeletal health was that of people who lived a hard life. Now we're just going to get into the three identified men. The first identified victim was Eric Kohler. At the time of his disappearance in 1995, Kohler was living with his grandparents in Port Charlotte when he went missing. Did anyone report him missing? His aunt, Karen Kohler, reported him missing in 1999 to Charlotte County Sheriff's. She told the deputies that he just picked up and left his grandparents' house in 1995 and nobody has heard from him since. He had a criminal record with a few misdemeanors of drug possessions. He was described as a pretty street-savvy person compared to the average person. He had this common trait with the second identified victim, John Blevins. Blevins went missing in 1995, but he was not reported missing until the bodies were discovered in 2007. Wow. We couldn't find much information on Blevins, but sources are saying he was in his early 2000s, sorry, 20s, <laughs> at the time of his disappearance. Blevins' mom did an interview with Wink News and gave some information about his life. She said Blevins visited Fort Myers and vanished in the mid-90s. She was the one that provided the DNA which matched to one of the bodies. Blevins' mom said his last words to her were quote-unquote, I'm going out for a little while and I'll be back. But he never returned. Oh my gosh, how awful. It definitely is heartbreaking. He had run-ins with the law, acquiring misdemeanors in drug possession and prostitution. He was a transient drug addict, just like our third identified victim, Jonathan Tihei. Tihei was 24 years old at the time of his disappearance in 1995. He had a busy home in Aurora, Illinois, whom he shared with his mom, stepfather, and younger sister, Natalie Worthington. His parents divorced when Jonathan was about 16 years old old and he moved away with his mom and sister but a year later his sister moved back with their father according to natalie his sister jonathan got mixed up in the wrong crowd and started doing drugs at one point he broke into his mom's storage unit and restaurant wait let me guess 
Was it for money? Your guess is as good as mine. But in 1991, Jonathan spent some time in jail in Kane County, then in Joliet Correctional Center for damaging property. By that time, Jonathan had moved out of his mom's house, but still kept in contact with her. The call says mom stopped in 1995, which concerned his family. So they tried filing a missing persons report, but because he was a drug addict, the police did not pursue the case. How did the family find out about Jonathan's death? Now, the way the family found out about Jonathan was pretty interesting. In January 2008, about a year after the news broke about the discovery of the remains of the eight men, Natalie's former roommate contacted Natalie to tell her what she saw on the news. Natalie contacted Detective Barry Lewis, who is the lead detective on the case. Lewis asked Natalie if Jonathan had any fractured bones, and Natalie recalled a time when Jonathan and her were kids, and Jonathan fractured his wrist when he was playing football in their yard. One of the skeletons, sure enough, had a healed wrist fracture. So in March 2008, Barry Lewis flew to Illinois and took a DNA sample from Natalie, but unfortunately, the results came back inconclusive. Wait, why were they why were they um inclusive? It's because Natalie was his half sister. This made Natalie very persistent to try to identify her brother's body, so she used a hairbrush that belonged to their mother. On September 18, 2008, it was announced that the DNA matched and the third victim was identified as Jonathan Tihay. This case received attention from none other than John Walsh, the creator of the TV show America's Most Wanted. John Walsh featured this case on America's Most Wanted Season 21, Episode 17 on January 19, 2008. Filming for this episode took place in late 2007. At this point, nobody was certain that this was the work of a serial killer. Although the bodies were near each other, the police did not have any sufficient evidence to claim this case is the work of a serial killer. But John Walsh believes it is the work of a serial killer because the bodies were very clustered closely enough. So Nisha, what are some theories on what happened to these men? Now, there are only two theories out there that I could find on what happened to these eight men. The first theory is that the eight men were victims of a funeral director. There was a funeral director that locals knew for dumping his bodies around his property. This is why locals have speculated that he was the culprit for so long. This theory seemed pretty weak because there is no evidence pointing to this theory. There were no medical paraphernalia found at the crime scene that would typically be found in funeral homes. I'm thinking of the location and wondering if there are any funeral homes in the area. So I did do my research and saw only two funeral homes within a one mile radius. These funeral homes were very close to the scene, but I'm not sure how long they were there for. They could have easily opened up after 1995. So the second theory is that a known serial killer, Daniel Conahan, killed these men. Conahan was a high-profile serial killer that operated in the next county over in Charlotte County. He was labeled as a sexual sadist. 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 (laughs) Can never say that word. By investigators who was known for tying up his victims and mutilating them or even strangling them. Conahan was part of the Navy and was discharged for sodomy and charged for assault. 
I understand how this can possibly be related to this case, but is there any evidence linking Conahan to the Fort Myers 8? Some locals do believe Conahan did it because these murders were done under very similar circumstances as the Hog Trail murders. The freaky part is that his victims were very similar to these eight men. <clears throat> All his alleged victims ranged from the age of 21 to 45 years old. They were also transient living struggling lifestyles. He offered money to day laborers and transients to take them into the woods to perform sexual acts on them. Once he lured them into the woods, he tied them up to trees. But ultimately, investigators found no evidence connected him to the case of these eight men. Do we have any information on what the locals believe? Yes, we do. So the locals believe that he may be the one responsible for these murders because the location he committed the murders that he was convicted for was near this area and it was around the same time frame. Also, the setting is pretty similar to where these eight men were found. It was a wooded and remote area, but that's not the only thing. There was this man that believed he was kidnapped by Daniel Conahan himself. Oh my gosh. Yes, in the early 90s. The man accused Conahan of luring him into a wooded area within miles of where the Fort Myers 8 were found and trying to strangle him, but the man escaped. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so Re, what is your theory on what happened to these eight men? I believe that Conahan maybe did it. There is so much evidence there that are very similar to the Hog Trail murders. A part of me is also saying that maybe it was a different serial killer. I definitely agree with you. I believe Conahan could have had some part in this because his victims were the same profile as the Fort Myers 8. Now I do have an observation that probably could go in Conahan's favor. John Doe number 5 was much taller than Conahan. John Doe number 5 was 5'11 to 6'3 with a muscular build, and Conahan was only 5'10. It doesn't seem possible Conahan could have overpowered someone like this unless they were willing to be tied or something to prevent them from fighting back. Also, it was weird how there were no bullet holes or any visible injuries on these men. How exactly did the killer kill these men? And why were they naked? What happened to their clothing and stuff to identify them? The killer seemed very meticulous, almost like They've done it before. Interesting observations you got there. Conahan was part of the Navy, so we aren't sure what his defense or fighting tactics were like. But the height and body build discrepancies are very suspicious. I can imagine someone who is muscular and 6'3 being taken out by a 5'10 guy. You definitely got a point there. He must have learned so much in the Navy that could have helped him lure and overpower these victims. Maybe. We don't have any accurate information on that, but can you imagine if there is a serial killer out there that went undetected for decades? I'm wondering what made this possible serial killer kill these victims from the jump and what made him stop. Did he pass away? Did something happen to him to prevent him from killing more victims? He could have possibly moved away to another state and carry out his killings in that state. Hopefully with the advancement of scientific research and technology, we can get answers to this case in the near future. The lead detective at the time, Barry Lewis, believes that the families of these men simply aren't living in Florida due to the nature of Florida. It's a state where everyone travels for vacation. So if you have any information relating to this case, you can contact the Fort Myers Police Department at 239-321-8015 or email Detective Melissa Langton at m. L-A-N-G-T-O-N at fmpolice.com. 
You can follow us for more updates and pictures relating to the cases on our Facebook page at Midnight True Crime Podcast, all lowercase letters, and on the gram at Midnight True Crime Podcast, all lowercase letters again. And for hints on our next case on Snapchat at capital M, lowercase D N I G H T, capital T, lowercase R U, capital C, lowercase R-I-M-E. If anyone would like to give us their own theories or add to this discussion, please comment on the IG or Facebook post relating to the case you would like to comment on. We would definitely love to hear from you all. This episode was made by following sources. Reddit.com, NBCNews.com, HeraldTribune.com, NBC2.com, NewsPress.com, FoxNews.com, WinkNews.com, morbidworldblog.wordpress.com, and chicagotribune.com. You can find the links to these sources on our Facebook page. Thank you to these sources for providing valuable information to make this episode possible. And don't forget, as a lovely Anna Barbald once said, the dead of Manai is the noon of the eye.